our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is also called Chris, and I am also one of the leaders here at St. Peter's. Um, today, we're going to start a series on the Lord's Prayer. That's why the other Chris got us all to read it out together. Um, but before we start, um, I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you for all that you're doing in and amongst us. Lord God, whether we're together or apart, I thank you that we are your one church. And I just pray for the message today, Lord God, that um, it will be your word and not mine. Um, and will you bless it and may it touch those who need it. Amen. Before I start the teaching on uh, the Lord's Prayer, we're going to look at a few memes that I found funny this week. They're going to pop up on the screen. I think that one looks a bit like John Carl. <laughs> he did say easy. <laughs> this one I'm not sure is appropriate for church, but it did make me laugh, so I thought I'd share it nonetheless. And then the final one. My wife didn't get this one. Um, for those who don't know, basically the idea of a meme is to say, I think this, and then the picture illustrates that um, we do something different. So my, the question is, is why do we buy stuff that we don't actually need? I'm sorry to tell you, but we as human beings are not as rational as we think we are. Modern marketing works by appealing to our, um, our emotional desires more than it does the product or what we actually need. It works by targeting what psychologists think are our two primary drivers, which is I fear and I want. Um, I don't actually think that this is the way God wired us. This is probably a result of, of the fall and disconnection from God. But nonetheless, a load of us will feel overwhelming emotions of anxiety and fear quite a lot of the time. For me, insecurity and fear is something that I've had to battle with most of my life. Um, and it's an area where I think all of us are still have an ongoing battle. Um, and and the, the fear of not being good enough feels quite prevalent in most of us most of the time. We want to look strong, don't we? We want to feel like we can do it, whatever it is that we want to do. We want to know that we've got what it takes. Um, and I don't think we do failure well. Um, we're always competing with someone or something in our mind, and we don't often measure up. Or if we do, uh, measuring up usually kind of collapses quite quickly straight after. And at the core of insecurity is a fear that I will not be accepted. Um, and we all want to be accepted. We all want to be loved. We all want to be valued. We all want to be accepted for who we are. Some of you know that alongside my work with St. Peter's, that I'm also studying um, at a college called St. Melitus. And it's actually my first time going to university. Um, and I know in the past I've mentioned I worked for the UN, which is true. And I'll talk about that another time. That's more to do with God's amazing provision and that he can put you wherever you need to be, regardless of what your past has been. But um, having such a job, and, and for a, quite a long time, I would go to quite a middle-class Anglican church. Um, I'm from quite a working-class background where university is, is nice to do, but it's not necessarily expected of you. So I always felt like I didn't quite fit in. 
I always felt quite insecure, actually, about my kind of lack of education, so to speak, especially when I'd be around friends who'd be talking about what university they went to or what courses they studied. And there's nothing wrong with that, and they should be free to enjoy those conversations. But my insecurity made me feel like I wasn't really good enough to be around them. I didn't really feel like I fitted in. And a lot of the time, I'd kind of pull back from this kind of shame. The truth is, now I'm studying university, I realized that my insecurities were, were silly. They were unfounded, but they were really real to me. Um, and at the root of my insecurity is and was a lack of identity. And um, for some people, it won't be education. Your uh, insecurity will be in another area of life. Um, and it, but if we say, I feel insecure in this, this, the answer is simply that we just don't know who we are. I don't know who I am because I don't know what God has said about me. And at the... Um, I don't know what God has said about me. The root of all of that insecurity is a lack of identity, or sometimes we put a false identity on us. And this can often make us feel anxious, unworthy, unseen, and unlovable. Um, this has actually been a really tough talk for me to write. Um, and not as in times of like emotionally tough, but I just couldn't really put it together. And so I was processing with my wife, Sarah, this week. And she just said to me, like, Chris, why is this talk so important to you? And on reflection, the reason it was so important to me is because when I finally got this concept that we're going to talk about, it fundamentally changed everything in my life. It started to bring about a massive healing process within me and it helped to change the way I think. It helped to change the way I think about myself. It helped to change the way I think about other people and about God. And it means so much to me because, because I was riddled with insecurity and fear. I used to hate public speaking, um, but God has been able to do a work in me now where um, I actually quite enjoy it, believe it or not. Um, but I really want people to be free to be the person that they were determined to be by God and not held back by fear. So what is it that I want us to learn? The thing that I had to learn that is if my identity is not firstly that we are beloved children of God, then I do believe that we'll end up being insecure and fearful and ultimately we won't feel fulfilled or like we're living the life that Christ called us to. If I don't know what God really thinks about me, I will end up basing my identity on what others think, and I will never be the person that I'm supposed to be. How is identity formed if we exclude God from the equation? It's through a process called socialization. Socialization describes the attitudes and the values and the behaviors that are appropriate and expected by culture and community. It occurs through observation. My father-in-law shared with me the other week that your child, we have, a new, we have a son called Lincoln, he will learn more through watching you than he will do through anything you say, which is quite a scary thought. So many of us will have learned who we are from our families. And many of us have family traits. My family trait is that when we're watching a movie, we spend more time thinking about what movies the other actors have been in than we do actually watching the movie. I spend more time on my phone looking at the IMDB profile of what other TVs and films and things like that they've been in than watching the actual movie. So we're shaped by the environment we grew up in. We are shaped by our friends, by our communities, by our schools, by our colleges, by the things that we watch on TV or online and by social media. Socialization forms our concept of who we are. 
And this is why we end up seeing generational or cultural issues perpetuated throughout generation after generation. Because we all start to crowd around maybe our families or our communities, their concept of what it is to be gifted, or their concept of what it is to be successful, or their concept of what it is to be beautiful, or to be cool, or to be a Christian. And guess what happens by default? We end up looking not like originals, but like cheap, faded copies. And we all get agitated and offended at other people. And we don't say it because we're British, but we often think things like, that's my job, or that's my role, or that's my position. That's, that's my friend. That, you're in the place of where I should be with my friend. You're in my job. You're in this place that I really want to be. And we've invented this concept called being a hater. Um, and it's because we dislike people who are a threat to our self-perceived identity. And um, we already dislike ourselves because we're not being authentic to who we're supposed to be. And the problem is, is that we end up becoming insecure and fearful because they've taken our place that we think we should be in. And when we become insecure and fearful, we often start to push people away. We start to isolate ourselves, and as a result, we can start to feel disconnected, lonely, and miserable. Last week, Ben talked about what it was or what it is to be made in God's image. And it's been making me think quite a lot about, but the problem is, is that if we don't actually know, and I'll come on to that word know later, if we don't actually know who or what God is, then we don't know what we're supposed to look like. The good news is that God knew this, and that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus was sent to reveal God, to reveal the real God. I think in John's Gospel, he often talks about how um, Jesus said, I have been misrepresented. The Father has been misrepresented. So Jesus came to show us who God really is. And we see this right from the start of the book of Matthew, which is where we find the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew is written with the intent of showing us that Jesus is the continuation of the fulfillment of the whole biblical story, and that um, Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is the new authoritative teacher like Moses, and Jesus is showing us the Father and who he actually is. He is called, he is God with us, which in Hebrew means is Emmanuel. Matthew wants to show, show that Jesus is the new Moses because Moses delivered the people from Egypt. So Jesus, like Moses, survived the massacre of the babies when they were young. They came up out of Egypt, passed through water. For Jesus, that was baptism. The, um, they both entered the wilderness for 40 units of time and they go up the mountain or the hillside to give a new teaching. In all of this, Matthew is proclaiming that Jesus is the greater new Moses, deliverer of God's people out of slavery who will now save us from our sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. After Jesus begins healing people um, and forming a movement, he takes his followers up onto a hillside and he delivers a big block of teaching that is famously called the Sermon on the Mount. And it is here in this sermon where we find the Lord's Prayer. It shouldn't really be called the Lord's Prayer. It should be called the Disciples' Prayer because both Luke and Matthew are really clear that the disciples ask Jesus, will you show us how to pray? So Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. We also know it probably isn't a prayer Jesus would have prayed because in it, it says, Lord, forgive us our sins. And Jesus was sinless and perfect and wouldn't necessarily have had to pray that prayer. Well, he wouldn't have had to pray that prayer. 
We also have to take note of the order of the petitions within this prayer. It's laid out carefully. And the reason of this, we're going to come to in a minute. So today, I am going to hone in and look at the very first opening line, which is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our is about collective worship. It is in reference to the church, the gathered people of God. And despite loads of our lovely Jesus is my boyfriend songs, he's only going to have one wedding, and that's to his one bride, the church. We are united as the church in Christ and under Christ. And so therefore, it's, the, it's a corporate prayer, our Father in heaven. I'm going to skip over the next word, but we're going to come back to it. Hallowed simply means to be holy and to be unique, to be set apart. Um, we were learning in theology, there are essentially two categories of things in life. There is God and there is everything else, because God is eternal. God is uncreated. God is everything and everything else other than God was created. So God is set apart. He is holy and he is more than we could ever comprehend. But the word I skipped over for me is the most foundational key word in the entire Bible. I think without this, everything else falls down. Our faith doesn't work if we don't understand this one key word. This is why Jesus puts it right at the start of the prayer that he instructs those who follow him to pray. The next word in the prayer after hour is simply Father. What was Jesus's mission? Jesus' mission wasn't necessarily, so stay with me here, just to die on the cross. It is essential to what he had to achieve. But the goal of it was a place to be reunited with the Father. And it couldn't have happened without what Jesus did. The cross is good news in the aspect of what it produces, but it isn't the good news. The good news is that God is a Father and he wants to be with us. Jesus came to reveal who and essentially what God is and what God's name really is. The next part of it, the hallowed be your name, is also important. In the Bible, names carry a great deal of significance. You were often, your name wasn't just a label, but it was a way to identify who you are. And it could be that you were named after your family. It could be named after a geography or it could be after vocation. So a lot of people have the same name of Miller, which means your family ground the grain. It could be Tanner, the people who stained the leather. It could be Smith, where people worked with metals. It could be um, Cooper, who made the barrels. It described what you did. So let's imagine for a moment God, who is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, decides to select a name for himself. It wouldn't just be a title or a function, but it would reveal his true nature, what he really is and who he really is. Let's consider for a moment the infinite possibilities that he could have selected. Captain of creation, chairman of the Trinity, supreme ruler over everything, CEO of the entire universe, exalted ruler over everything. None of these names were right for him. None of these names fitted who he was. He wanted a name that wasn't just a title that reflected a function. It would reveal his true nature. And at some point in eternity, God, the creator, said, I want to be known as a father. Jesus came to reveal that God 
is a father. Over a hundred times in the book of John, Jesus refers to God as father. It's such a significant shift from the way that he was perceived in the Old Testament that in the book of John, that is the moment where the religious elite decided to kill Jesus. The moment they decided to plot to bring him down was when he said, God is a father. They didn't like that. That was blasphemous to them because they thought that was him making himself equal with God. And the thing is, is it wasn't just Jesus who called God Father. He instructed his disciples to also call God Father too. I said earlier that the Lord's Prayer really shouldn't be necessarily labelled as the Lord's Prayer. But we do see Jesus praying in John 17. And I'm just going to read you parts of that now. I encourage you to read the whole chapter at home. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. I'm just going to skip forward a little bit. And it says this, this is the way to have eternal life. This is key, to know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one who sent you. To know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, the one that you sent to the earth. And Jesus goes on and says, I brought you glory here on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. It's interesting to look at that. He says that prior to going to the cross. So there's more theological work we probably have to do with that. But essentially he's saying, I have done what you've asked me to do. Jesus says his work is complete. And his work was this. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from the world, which is all of us. Jesus says his work is complete when he's revealed who the Father really is. Jesus is saying, I have revealed who you truly are. You're not distant. You're not mad. You're not a tyrant. You're not angry. You're not out to make us feel guilty. You're not out to make us feel like we're not good enough. You're not out to punish people who aren't perfect. You're not intent on making us feel unloved. You are a father and you love us unconditionally and you will never, ever give up on us. God is not the parent that we had growing up. I was sat with um, our baby boy Lincoln the other day. He's three months old and, um, and he was asleep on the sofa and I wanted to get close to him. So I sat on the floor to be next to him on the sofa and he's asleep and I'm trying to not wake him up. But I can't help but kiss his head and his hands and his feet and he's all soft and he smells nice. Not all the time, but at that time he did. And I just can't help but do that. And I just sat there and I'm just like, I love you. I love you. I love you. You're my precious little man, and I love you so much. When you become a parent, and I'm, not everyone watching this is a parent, but the message is for you. When you become a parent, you just feel this overwhelming love. And I can't think of a job that I want to do better in my life than to be a father to Lincoln, to be a good father to him. I want to give everything I can. And yet in that moment when I'm kissing my son and I'm telling him how much I love him, I felt good to say, don't you dare think you're a more loving father than me. And it was like, wow, like I love him that much. And yet God is saying, I love so much more than you could ever think. 
in Matthew 7, uh, Jesus says that, so if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is basically meaning we are inherently selfish. Um, and that if I, who thinks about myself more than anyone else, if I know how to love my child, if I know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more will the father give to those who ask? In this context, he's actually talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. I will ultimately do my best. I will try to do my best to be a good parent. However, I'm not going to be perfect. I'm going to mess up. And in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that God is the only perfect parent. That is the good news. That is the gospel. The good news for me is that the God over the entire universe, like Chris Hen was talking about earlier, over 200 billion galaxies, the God over all that loves you. And he knows you. And he just wants to hold you. God is a father who loves you. The Lord's Prayer starts with this because without this is the foundation, without knowing that we're loved, we end up trying to work and perform for love. And actually all the rest of it, your kingdom come, forgiveness, all the bits that we're going to go through, they don't work unless we fully know that we're loved. That needs to be the starting point is to know the love of God. Some of you have had um, amazing experiences of being parented, but I also know a lot of people have had horrendous experiences of being parented. I know some people have been traumatized and abused. Um, some will feel like they can never please their parents, like they're trying to perform for their parents' love. Some of us may not even know who our parents actually are. Um, and that's a really tough place to then think about a parent in heaven who loves us. Unfortunately, you're not on your own. Um, a lot of the Psalms are attributed to King David in the Old Testament. And um, there's definitely a lot of sort of research and work done into thinking that he probably was parented quite poorly as well. And so David, who was not parented very well, says in Psalm 27, verse 10, even if my father and mother abandoned me, the Lord will hold me close. Even if I'm abandoned, I don't have the parents that I should have had as in they weren't the most loving parents. God will be my parent. God will hold me close and God will love me. And that is the good news. That is good news. So for me, when people talk about evangelism a lot of the time, it's like, oh, I just don't know what to tell them. But actually, if I just think about the good news is I just tell people that God loves them and he's a parent, then that's something everybody wants to hear. As I said earlier, we are not as rational as we like to think we are. We are ultimately led by our emotional responses. And in, Paul, in Ephesians, the apostle Paul, in chapter 3, verse 17 to 19, says this, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that passes knowledge, that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. He's saying we are to be rooted and grounded and established in the Father's love. The foundation of the Lord's Prayer, this foundation, this establishment is in the Father's love. That you would know 
How high, how wide, and how deep is Jesus' love? And I was thinking about the know more than knowledge, and it didn't really work out for me. I was like, how can you know more than knowledge? These two things seem to be interconnected. Even the word knowledge, it does have no at the start of it. And so then I, I did what any good theologian or budding theologian should try and do, and I looked up the original word. And the word that was used for to know is ginosko, which means to know, especially through personal intimate experience we are to actually have an experience with God so that we would know his love because if we don't get it through our minds we're not going to get it just through our minds we have to get it through our hearts as well we have to experience it because this is what drives us true transformation comes through a heart encounter with the God who is a father who loves us it comes through an encounter with God the father and as I said, I appreciate that for some people, the, the concept of a father is negative. But God is a good father who you can put your trust in. And please hear me, I really don't take this lightly. My mum and dad, they foster, uh, they foster children. I'm, all, I'm fully aware of the lives that people can lead. But what I have seen is those who actually can start to heal and to move forward are those who undo a lot of that by putting trust in parents who truly love them. Um, once a week, I, I, I'm having, I've got a great relationship with a guy I've never met, but we, we have a chat on the phone every week, and he's a, an officer at Young Offenders Institute in London. And every week we have a chat, and he tells me the number one cause of young men being in that Young, young Offenders Institute is fatherlessness. They don't know that there's a father who loves them. They don't know there's a father that they can put their trust in. This guy I speak to is an incredible man. And he actually tries to help father these boys whilst he's with them. And he tries to teach them this, which I found quite profound. Your past can be a prison or it can be a school. It can literally imprison you or it can educate you. If you put your trust in God and the work that that demands, God will redeem your past and transform your future. You're not going to get those years back, but he's going to do so much more with what is left and it's going to transform your future. It's going to make up for what you've lost. So if we want to change the way we think, we need to, and we want to rid ourselves of insecurity and fear and doubt, to be free to live the life of fullness that God wants for us. And we need to experience the goodness of God. Romans 2, 4 tells us that it is the goodness of God that leads to repentance. And repentance basically means to turn away from the lives that we were leading. And that happens by changing the way we think. So repentance is often associated with to change the way we think. So the goodness of God leads to repentance. So the goodness, knowing the goodness of God, experience the goodness of God leads to changing the way we think. A change in the way we think about ourselves and about God, and about others, and about our purpose and our existence, and what life truly means. So how do we do that? For me, 
Um, it started by moving from my identity being placed in what other people thought about me or what I thought they thought about me or within that and starting to put it in a couple of things. One is the value that God has for me. And I've used this analogy before, but it works. So I'm going to use it again. If you think you have a house worth, say, 500,000 pounds, but everybody who comes to see your house just thinks it's worth 250,000 pounds and the estate agents think it's worth 250,000 pounds, you don't have a house that's worth 500,000 pounds. You have a house that people are willing to pay for it. The value of something is what somebody is willing to pay for it. Jesus, who is God with us, thought you were so valuable, he paid for his entire, with his life. You are that valuable. So we start by basing our identity as precious children of God who loves us and would do anything to be reunited with us. Um, and so for me, that would look like having times of prayer every day and spending it with the Father. And to start with, it was maybe a bit uncomfortable. I'm, you know, it wasn't necessarily something I was used to, but I basically forced myself to spend time with God and my prayers started to become consumed. God, I want to experience, I want to know your love. I want to feel, I want to walk this earth feeling loved in here, not just in here. I kind of got the concept of love, but I would wake up still feeling anxious which was a sign that I didn't fully feel loved by God. And I was like, Lord, will you just consume my heart with your love? I need you to change my heart. God says he'll do this. He says it in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and I will give you a tender, responsive heart. So for me, it's to spend time with a father who loves me every day. I invite Holy Spirit to come. And I trust he always turns up, even if I don't feel like it. Feelings aren't always your friend. But God will always show up. I wasn't fearful of saying the wrong thing, of praying the wrong thing. He's a good dad. He just wanted to spend time with me. I would ask him to speak to me. God, will you tell me? Father, will you tell me what you think of me? Will you tell me where we're going to go in my life? I want to do this with you, Jesus. Where are we going to go today? What does today look like? What does this week look like? What are you saying for me? And I start to base my identity out of what God says and nothing else. I would ask him to remove any anxious feelings that I'd be feeling that day as well. All a, all a good father really wants to see in life is his children smile. The best bit of my day is Lincoln smiling. And to see your children grow up to be free and to be fully full of joy and to live the life that they are created for. And God is a better father than we could ever imagine. Knowing God, as in experiencing God, is where our transformation starts. And I think if we discover who God really is, that's when we know who we're made after. And we start to discover who we really are. So we're going to give it a go now. So we're going to have some time where now we're just going to set aside things. And I know what it's like doing church at home, but let's just try and put aside things, try and give snacks to your kids like Chris Hen was saying. Um, and let's make some space where we can spend time with the Father now. Some of us will need help processing through our past. Sometimes we have to go to people who know what they're doing. If I'm sick, I go to a doctor. Sometimes we do need help 
with prayer and with love and with counselling and stuff. So I would say that if you need help with prayer, at the end of the service will be our ministry Zoom rooms. Um, and you can find the, um, the button for that either on our website, and we may bring it up online in a minute. I've just sprung that on the tech team. But we basically go to a ministry Zoom room at the end of this for some prayer. But right now, I just invite you all to stand where you are. So please stand. It's good to close our eyes. It just cuts out distractions. And if you hold out your hands in front of you, like you're waiting to receive a gift, I'm just going to pray, Holy Spirit, will you come now? Will you flood our hearts? Will you flood our homes? Will you flood our minds? Will your peace that passes all that we know and your love, will it descend upon us now? Lord, will you give me, give us a new heart and renew our minds. Father, will you show us what you think about us? Let's just wait there. Ask God now yourself, show me what you think about me, Father God. Lord, can you help me to change the way I think? Help me to know who you truly are.